this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. And do we have anything better to do? No. Not tonight. It's no. garbage night, though. Oh, for if, what? For our episode? <laughs> no. <laughs> Mom and Dad get very excited. Oh, I bet they do. Tomorrow's garbage day. So I did have a beef I wanted. Okay. Beef away. I was, I was just watching the news. And in recent days, there were two murders at colleges, one with the football players in the University of Virginia. And then there was one in Idaho, well, off campus, but they were right. college students. In the Idaho murder, they aren't saying if they have a suspect, but they don't have anyone in custody. And yet they said, oh, there's no danger to the public. And as we have discussed before, I'm not one of these people that's always scared of everything right. or someone's going to break in. But at the same time, how can they, if how they don't they even know? know who did it? Well, it's just like the thing I was going to update tonight, but I didn't have time. So it'll be next episode, the double murders in Concord, New Hampshire, who they finally arrested someone. And remember when we did that episode, which was a standalone mini episode, they had no idea who did it. And they said, there's no danger to the public. And then it turns out it's this transient carrying a gun around. It's like, so how could they have known there was no danger to the public? And I feel like there probably was danger to the public. Yeah. And also another thing that annoyed me about the Idaho one, somebody termed it a crime of passion or a possible. Yes. And I wish we'd get rid of that phrase. It's usually related to domestic violence or gender-based yes. murder. And it's not a crime of passion. It's a crime of control, anger, and there were red flags, I'm sure, that people could have seen. Yes. But anyway, so I kind of embedded in that discussion that I'm not going to have that update tonight. I just don't okay. have time to do it. I'll okay, one other time. thing that's in the news that I just wanted to mention very briefly before we start. Okay. We had talked previously about Dennis DeShane, who has been in prison since like 1990, whatever, 1989, 90, for murder. They finally were able to test DNA. That was on the evidence. And we did discuss this a few episodes ago. So he's been ruled out on some of it. He's been ruled out as contributing the DNA. Yes. And so he's trying to get, they're trying to get a new trial, his his attorney. And of course, the attorney general is fighting against that. Yeah, they always so do. We'll do, uh, they we'll do some the truth more than the win, but they don't. They, they right. don't. We, and we hear a lot of podcasts about stuff like this and everything. It's very hard to get them to turn around and do anything about it. And people in Maine are so committed to the fact that this guy did it. It's been the narrative for decades now, you know, and mm -hmm. they just hate going back on that narrative. They <sighs> just don't want to admit they could have convicted an innocent person and let a pedophile child killer go loose yeah we'll have to do an episode we will yeah. but there's so much i just want some a more of a conclusion yes i know not when things one. keep changing yeah. yeah but anyway so should i just start my yes i'm very excited okay about it. My sources for this, I'll name them as I go, because a lot of it came from newspapers.com, from old okay. newspapers. And then there's some modern stuff, but I'll just mention them. Guy Raul Rockwell, a 45-year-old antique dealer in Seattle, Washington, closed up his shop on August 2nd, 1960 for good 
and sold off all its stock at auction. He wanted a fresh start, he told his neighbors. His second wife, Manzanita, had left him in the spring and he'd filed for divorce July 21st, charging cruelty, inhumane treatment, and desertion. The divorce was finalized five days later on July 26th. And I thought that was kind of quick, but maybe desertion back, you know, in 1960, you could get a five a divorce maybe. in five days. I don't know. Neighbors said that before Manzanita left, the Rockwells were having financial trouble. Four months before the divorce, on March 31st, Manzanita told her doctor that she was fed up with Guy and was going to have a showdown with him that Ooh. day or the next over his unfaithfulness and shady financial dealings. Uh-huh. Manzanita had been with Rockwell for four years after she deserted her husband, as the San Francisco Examiner put it. Another newspaper said that in 1956, she and her husband, William Mearns, walked into Rockwell's antique shop, and she and Rockwell were so attracted to each other that they got divorces so they could be together. In any case, they did both divorce their spouses in 1956, and Manzanita moved in with Rockwell. The two got married two years later in 1958, and they lived above the antique shop in a wooden two-story building at 2512 Fairview Avenue North on Upton Lake in Seattle. The building is described in various newspapers as a ramshackle two-story frame house, UPI called it the ugly-looking two-story frame house. Hmm. Other articles say it's dim, ill-lit, and cluttered. A Spokane statesman story called it a creaky, eerily-lighted old house. I looked it up on Google Street View, and it looks like the whole area has been urban renewaled beyond recognition since Hmm. then. Not that I expected anything different. But I did find a photo of it in a 1960 Vancouver Sun article, so I'll put that on our website. Oh, good. So you can see for yourself. Manzanita's daughter, Dolores Mearns, who'd been a top student at McGee High School in Vancouver, British Columbia, came to live with them after she graduated in 1959 so she could attend the University of Washington, where she'd finished up her freshman year in spring 1960. Dolores was the oldest of three children Manzanita had with her ex-husband, William. Once a month, Manzanita would make the 145-mile trip north from Seattle across the border to Vancouver to visit her other two daughters, Anita, 13, and Mavis, 7. It's not known whether Manzanita had that big showdown she told her doctor she was planning, but after April 1st, 1960, no one saw her or Dolores Mm. again. Things had started out so well for Manzanita and Rockwell. He seemed like a good catch, after all. Her husband, William, was an auto parts dealer in Canada, and Rockwell, with his antique shop and his urbane pipe-smoking manner, probably seemed like a move-up for her. Uh Rockwell had arrived in Seattle in 1948, telling people he was born in France in 1915 and came to the U.S. at the age of 17. He said he was immediately accepted upon arrival in the U.S. at the University of California, even though he didn't have any formal schooling. It was his impressive linguistic ability that got him in, he said. He'd also served in the U.S. Army as a second lieutenant in counterintelligence during the war. He was well known to local antique sellers and dealers, and on most nights would hold court in his shop, puffing on his pipe and pontificating about his adventures into the wee hours. One of his dealer buddies later told the New York Daily News, We thought him something of a rascal and full of hot (laughs) air, but he was forceful and interesting. Hmm. In a May 1960 newspaper article, before everything went downhill for Rockwell, a reporter asked him why his store was only open from 4 p.m. to 1 a.m. He responded, it's quiet at night. Sometimes
Sometimes I stand in the door and listen to cats howl. If there are no customers around, I laugh at the ridiculousness of the whole thing. I know. On August 2nd, 1960, when he auctioned off his stock, Rockwell told acquaintances that he was going north to Canada to buy some Indian artifacts in British Columbia, then heading to Portugal and Africa on a Fulbright Fellowship to study Ashanti bronzes. Sure. A Fulbright Fellowship or scholarship is an extremely prestigious grant given to American college seniors, grad students, teachers, professionals, scientists, and artists to study, conduct research, teach, or exercise their talents abroad. In 1960, it was still limited to students and grad students mostly. It was proposed by Senator J. William Fulbright of Arkansas in 1945, who suggested using the proceeds from selling surplus U.S. government war property to fund international exchange between the U.S. and other countries through an education exchange. The bill called for forgiving debts from foreign countries to the U.S. amassed during the war and instead funding what Fulbright envisioned as a vehicle to promote peace and mutual understanding, helping everybody get along. Oh, why can't we all just why can't get along? we all just get along only around 20 percent of those who apply for a fulbright get one they're applied to through a college or university rockwell told acquaintances his was through the university of washington uw these days is one of the top fulbright producers in the u.s last year 22 students received grants in fact uw students as far back as 1949 had become fulbright scholars but and if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, <laughs> you've already guessed this. Guy Raul Rockwell was not one of them. <laughs> like almost everything about him, including his name, his age, his place of birth, his career choices, his education, the Fulbright scholarship, where he'd come from and where he was going, he was lying. Guy was born Guy Moldavin in Brooklyn, New York, not in France. He was born in 1923, not 1915. He had ear problems that kept him out of the service during World War II, so no, he wasn't a second lieutenant in counterintelligence. His brother Michael told one newspaper in 1960 that Guy disappeared sometime after the war and Michael hired a private detective to find him. Michael didn't say when this happened or what had prompted the disappearance or a search for Guy, but he told UPI, that's United Press International, it's like the Associated Press, and you're going to hear it referenced a lot during this, but he told UPI they'd made a truce. The terms were he'd keep in touch with me if I kept our parents and other brothers from bothering him, mm. Michael told UPI. Michael also told UPI that they were of Irish heritage, which turns out isn't correct. It also turns out they had no other brothers, hmm. even though he said, Interesting. yes, he told the Vancouver Sun that Rockwell had been adopted, which was true. And that Guy changed his last name to Rockwell in the 1930s at some point. He said he hadn't heard from Guy for four years. Guy and I lived together for a good part of our youth, but I can't say we were very close, said Michael, who was three years older than Guy. Guy cut himself off from his family. He told me very little about himself, and I never pried. So that makes me wonder about the private eye, because nothing is more prying than sending a private eye. <laughs> One interesting side note on Michael, he is described in stories from 1960 as an engineer or an economist but at this point he was an attorney and while in august 1960 he lived in san diego he was a defendant in a class action suit by multiple clients of his law firm in albuquerque new mexico who were suing him for fraud and embezzlement hmm. so that's guy's brother take it for yeah. what it's worth anyway back to guy after the divorce from manzanita was final on july 26 guy didn't waste any time 
He married Evelyn Emerson, 41, on July 29th. Evelyn said later that Guy was the possessor of a powerful personality. Hmm. Evelyn, a widow when Guy met her, was from a wealthy family. Her stepmother, Caroline Winkler or Germaine Winkler or Mrs. Clifford Winker, depending on which newspaper you read, was a wealthy socialite who lent Guy $10,000 to buy those Indian artifacts in British Columbia. Nice. Guy told her he only needed 8000 and would give her a note for the other 2000 mm. Once he got the artifacts, he was going to immediately sell them to a Portland, Oregon dealer who'd already promised to pay 16000 for them. So a nice return on that. Oh, yeah. But on August 4th, two days after closing up his antique shop, he was not in British Columbia buying artifacts. He was 800 miles south of Seattle in San Francisco. He went there with a married woman, but she wasn't married to him. No, <laughs> Evelyn was back in Seattle already seriously regretting her five-day-old marriage. The new woman dubbed the Mystery Midnight Woman by UPI. As UPI reported, Richard White, a boat dealer and frequent customer of Guy's Antique Shop, said that the day Guy was closing up on August 2nd, a strangely beautiful girl that is very <laughs> dramatic looking drove up in a large expensive car. She was also dressed expensively. Guy didn't introduce her to the people at the shop, but she seemed to be waiting for him. Police wouldn't identify the woman that Guy went to San Francisco with. According to the San Francisco Examiner, he met her while courting his third wife, that would be Evelyn, who he just been married to for five days. Another report described her as a Eurasian housewife. Another Ooh. report described her as an attractive Eurasian housewife. Her name, Mrs. Irene Gregory of Seattle. Guy lured his new flame to San Francisco with the promise that they'd sail together from there to Africa on a 42-foot fishing boat that he said he half-owned. And I got to say that the last thing that would lure me fucking <laughs> yeah, anywhere is a promise to sail around the world to Africa on a fucking 42. I was just thinking that. Oh. When they got to San Francisco, he gave her a gold wedding ring, which did not fit, and a $50 gold piece. That ring was last on the finger of his second wife, Manzanita. It's the thought that counts. According to the San Francisco Examiner, in a September 2nd, 1960 article, Guy spent August 4th and 5th in hotels with the, quote, married woman, unquote. Uh, everybody kind of knocks this woman for being married, but nobody points out that Guy is married to somebody else. You know? I know. He's a newlywed. Yeah. For crying out loud. She had a sore throat, and Guy sent her to a doctor in Berkeley who he said he knew, but it turned out didn't exist. When she got back to their hotel room, Guy was gone. She decided to go back home to Seattle and called the hotel room before she left. It's not clear from where and was connected to another woman. It's not like Irene missed that boat to Africa because the boat guy claimed to own, the Isbin, was owned actually by an Alaska native tribe <laughs> and had never docked in San Francisco or been anywhere near San Francisco. So that didn't really exist either. Guy by that time was long gone. Gone, but not forgotten. There were many people who were looking for him. Germaine or Caroline or Mrs. Clifford Winkler, his wife Evelyn's stepmother, had almost immediately filed a police report charging Guy with larceny after he cashed the check she'd given him for those artifacts but hadn't gone to British Columbia. The charge was grand larceny, or bunco as they liked to call it back in the day, <laughs> and so police immediately began to look for him. 
Also looking for him was Mrs. Joe Ellen Corbley, formerly Joe Ellen Loop, and before Corbley, Joe Ellen Rockwell. She'd married Guy in 1946 in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, and divorced him in 1956. She's the one he divorced and then got together with Manzanita. She'd owned the antiques business with him even after the divorce, and on August 29th, when Guy hadn't been seen for weeks, she made a $175 mortgage payment on the building that housed the shop and residence, telling police later she wanted to protect her investment in it and avoid foreclosure. Joellen had won a judgment against Guy in 1956 for $2,496 in child support for their now 10-year-old daughter, but he'd never paid up. William Mearns, Manzanita's ex-husband, also wanted to find Guy. Not that he actually wanted Guy, he just wanted to find out from him where his ex-wife, Manzanita, and 18-year-old daughter Dolores were. The last time he'd heard from either of them was in March. Manzanita, he said, would never skip the monthly visit with her two younger kids, which she'd been faithful about ever since they'd split up. Dolores, too, was frequently in touch with both him and her younger sisters, but he hadn't heard from either of them since March. William filed missing persons reports for both of them on August 22nd. Police, quick on the uptake, went to search the property after William filed the reports. That's the antique shop and residence mm -hmm. on Fairview Ave. An observant young detective named Gail Leonard, and even though it's spelled G-A-I-L, it's a um, guy, just yeah, an FYI, noticed fresh cement around the septic tank. Mm. The police opened it up and found human remains that included an ear, fingers, the bones of an arm and tissue, and a lot of hair. They said all belonged to one person, a young woman. They also found a dental plate, which was odd because neither Manzanita nor Dolores had dentures. The remains had been partially burned as well. King County pathologist, Dr. Gale, and this is Gale, G-A-L-E, Wilson, mm -hmm. said the remains likely belonged to a young woman between 16 and 20. A couple months before, May and June, the legs of a woman had been found in the Columbia River between Priest Rapids and Vantage, Washington, 135 miles east of Seattle. So Wilson, the pathologist, figured he should check them out in oh. case they were related to the missing Rockwell women. He said they were from a woman 35 to 40 years old, about 130 pounds, 5 feet 5 to 5'7", which could be Manzanita. Police also found microscopic blood spatter and hairs in the kitchen sink drain in the apartment where the family lived. They searched Upton Lake across the street from the antique shop and house, but apparently didn't find anything there. Gail Leonard, the cop who noticed the wet cement around the septic tank, told Vancouver Sun columnist Jack Wasserman for his quickie corner column on September 20th that finding Guy Rockwell would be the easy part. Quote, he's an extrovert who must show up. Our problem is proving who was in the tank and how they were killed. Unquote. The Vancouver Sun by now was calling the case the septic tank murders. Yeah. Wasserman, the columnist, had this gem on September 22nd. The collection of Indian artifacts that septic tank suspect Guy Rockwell told friends he plans to purchase belongs to the University of British Columbia's Jim Garner, unquote. And I'm like, okay, can you tell us more? Like, <laughs> did Garner know Rockwell? Was there any deal for the artifacts? I mean, he just throws that out there. You also had to find out in a separate story that same day in The Sun that the reason Wasserman was talking to Detective Gail Leonard was that the cop was in Vancouver to check Manzanita and Dolores's medical records to see if he could find out their blood types or see if they had any identifying marks, but he drew a blank. And I think that just really underlines 
how much more difficult it was in 1960 to solve crimes than it is now and identify bodies. And just a note, Guy is called Rockwell in some stories and Guy Moldavin, his real last name and others. So I may refer to him two different ways, but whether I say Rockwell or Moldavin, I'm talking about the same person. I I don't mean to confuse people, but the newspapers call him different things and... On September 26, 1960, the Associated Press reported that Moldavin was wanted for questioning in the 1950 murder of a bread truck driver and the disappearance of a teenage girl in Fortuna, California, Mm. which was in far northern California, about 600 miles south of Seattle. Moldavin had lived in Fortuna, California around 1947 or 48, possibly 1950, Humboldt County Deputy Sheriff Harvey Larson told the AP. On June 18, 1950, the body of Henry Baird, 22, of Eureka, California, was found near Table Bluff, which is near Fortuna. He'd been shot in the back of the head. He was naked except for his shoes and socks, and his clothes were piled nearby. It looked as though he'd been shot with his own gun. A 32 caliber pistol was missing from his truck and had never been found, and he'd been hmm. shot with a 32 caliber bullet. He'd last been seen a few days before with Barbara Jo Kelly, 17, a Fortuna waitress. Her clothes were piled up with Baird's, but she was nowhere to be found. At the time, Moldavin was a short-order cook in a restaurant in Fortuna owned by Jeremy Loop, father of Joellen, Guy's wife at the time. They were living in Fortuna with Joellen's parents when Baird was killed and Kelly disappeared. Kelly was a waitress at the other restaurant. There were only two in Fortuna at the time. Both restaurants were on Baird's bread route. Back in Washington in October, some more evidence was found in Vantage near where those legs had been found in Mm. um, early summer. Three detectives from Seattle went out to take a look. There was blood-stained wax paper and dirt of a freshly dug appearance, according to AP. They didn't really specify anymore. It seems like three detectives would go out there for a lot more than that. Yeah. Back in September, 70 specimens of remains had been sent to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C. On October 25th, it was reported that the FBI had determined that, yes, indeed, they were the remains of a young woman, the ones from the septic tank. The two legs found in the Columbia River were also that of a woman, the FBI said, though they didn't specify what age and couldn't really tell much else about them. On November 2nd, the King County DA, Charles Carroll, charged a John Doe with mutilation of a human body and charged Moldavin, who they were still calling Rockwell at the time, as a witness as a way to have charges brought against Rockwell that he could be brought back for beyond the grand larceny charges. They couldn't file a murder charge. They just didn't have the solid evidence. But they found those remains in his septic tank on his property. (laughs) So that's the best they could do at the moment. Carroll, the DA, also asked the U.S. attorney for that district to bring federal charges of being a fugitive in interstate commerce, which would allow the FBI to help find him. U.S. Attorney Charles Moriarty filed the charge that day. As UPI reported on November 3rd, the G-Men Wednesday picked up the scent of Guy Raul Rockwell, an attempt to solve one of the most baffling mysteries in the annals of Seattle crime. The G-Men. Yes, the G-Men. On November 30th, the G-Men, who always get their man, got their man. The they don't FBI... use things like, phrases like that no, anymore. They know, they know better. The FBI traced Moldavin, a.k.a. Rockwell, through traveler's checks to Utah, Provincetown, Massachusetts, then Greenwich Village in Manhattan, where he was picked up by the agents in what was described as an art-cluttered apartment. Hmm. 
He was going by the name Michael Strong and had shaved off his mustache and dyed his hair red. And it turned out later, too, that he had gotten a nose job. But I guess I didn't notice that at the time. But they weren't fooled by all that because they're the FBI. (laughs) See right through that disguise. This was huge news. Newspapers across the country and almost every state and in Canada as well ran either the AP or UPI stories about it. Here's the account of Moldavan's life the authorities gave AP and UPI. Moldavan was born in New York City, October 28th, 27th or 28th, 1923. His name was Guy Rockwell Moldavan. He attended school in Switzerland and New York City. His family moved to Ribera, New Mexico, where they lived on a cattle ranch. He was tutored there and attended high school at Rumsey Hall in Washington, Connecticut, then attended the New York Academy of Dramatic Arts until May 1943. I know it all sounds a little fantastical, but at least the bones of it are true. His family did have a ranch in New Mexico, quite a big one, that the two boys stayed with their mother, Sylvia, for long stretches of time, from what I can tell from newspaper accounts. The family also traveled the world. Guy was arraigned in U.S. court in Brooklyn November 30th and ordered held on $50,000 bail. When bail commissioner Earl Bishop set the amount, Moldavan said if he had the money, he still wouldn't put it up. Are you willing to go back to Seattle? Demanded Bishop with some surprise. The New York Daily News wrote, Oh, yes, Moldavan responded. Am I supposed to have fled to avoid arrest? He asked. And this is me breaking in. I think he was asking what the fugitive charge was for. He was charged as a fugitive. Oh, I see. Okay, that and, makes sense. And Bishop told him, no, the charge wasn't that he'd fled to avoid arrest. It was he'd fled to avoid giving testimony in the disappearance of Manzanita and Dolores, the Daily News wrote that Moldavan seemed relieved to hear. And of course, the Daily News had the most colorful coverage. Their December 2nd headline on the story about the arraignment was NAB Village Casanova on (laughs) on Grizzly Find. The lead was hipster bunko artist and great (laughs) lover Guy Rockwell Moldavan, 37, was seized in his curio-cluttered Greenwich Village apartment by the FBI. The paper described him as hulking and said he stood six foot two and weighed almost 250 pounds. In fact, the paper seems obsessed with his size because in a story on December 7th, in the very lead of the story, it describes him as a six foot four, 240 pound West Coast antique stealer. Back to the first story, the hipster bunko artist one, it said, authorities said Moldavan had three wives and several sweethearts. And they must not have gotten the memo that his Seattle home was ugly, ramshackle, dim, cluttered, whatever, because they wrote that Manzanita and Dolores moved into his lakeside home in Seattle, making it sound lovely. It also said he'd been an actor and disc jockey in California before moving to Seattle, and that he rarely opened the doors of his antique shop before 6 p.m., Quote, in it, nightly clustered beatniks, art lovers, celebrities, and celebrity hunters, all bound by Moldavan's magnetism and offbeat philosophy, unquote. The story quoted Mrs. Ben Sapienza, wife of the superintendent of the apartment building on Carmine Street in Greenwich Village, where Moldavan had landed. He was in and out at all hours. He was always alone. The path was quickly cleared for extradition, and a hearing was set for December 8th. In Seattle, D.A. Charles Carroll said he'd probably try Moldavan on the fraud charges, since there was still not enough evidence to charge him with murder. They raised his bail on the bunko charge from $5,000 to $25,000. 
Meanwhile, in Fortuna, California, the sheriff and undersheriff did some quick spin control on conflicting statements over whether Moldavin was still a, a suspect in the Beard murder and Kelly disappearance there. Deputy Harvey Larson had said Moldavin was more or less eliminated because it turned out he moved to Seattle a month or so before the two were killed. But Sheriff William Fritz said Moldavin was still the top suspect. Until such time as we can question him and find where he was at the time of the crime, the case is definitely not closed. He could very easily have come back. Fritz also said there's too much strong feeling around the double murder, even more than 10 years later, to just drop it. And I will say that as far as I know, Moldavin's in-laws, ex-in-laws at this point, still lived in Fortuna. So he was still married for six years to Joe Ellen after that. He easily could have gone back. Seattle detective Herbert Swindler flew out to New York to question Moldavin, who pulled a typical play from the narcissist murderer playbook and said he was on a hunger strike and that he had willed himself to die. But, of course, he didn't die. By Monday, three days later, the hunger strike was over. He was now asking to talk to a priest. It's not clear what came of that request, but although an extradition hearing had been set for December 8th, on December 7th, after prosecutors talked with Moldavin's attorney, Leonard Schroeder, he was released to return to Seattle with Detective Herbert Swindler, who was still in town waiting for, to bring him back. After Moldavin has returned to Seattle, the reporting frenzy seems to disappear. If there are more stories, I can't find them on newspaper.com for the next year or so. Then in October 1961, things pick up as he goes to trial on the fraud charges so they still haven't been able to make a case on any murder charges or gotten any farther with the mm. murder investigation. During the trial, Moldavin testified in his own defense, of <laughs> course. He said that a lifetime of being treated poorly because he was a Jew is what led him to get his nose straightened and dye his hair red after he left Seattle in August 1960. So he was not trying to disguise himself. Mm. If you remember, the reason he was on trial is he had conned the stepmother of his third wife, Evelyn, to whom he'd been married for less than a week, out of $10,000. He told the jury that the deal to buy and sell the Indian artifacts fell through after he'd borrowed the money, and he was too ashamed to face his new wife or stepmother. So that's why he took off for San Francisco and then New York. It turns out, before Caroline or Germaine or Mrs. Clifford Winkler... And in this story, she's called Mrs. Clifford Winkler, lent him the money. He gave her a letter of reference from a major John Riley, attesting to his heroic action during World mm-hmm. War II, saying that he'd served in counterintelligence from 1939 to 1945 and that he could be trusted. As we know, Moldavin never served in the army. He admitted on the stand the letter was fake, concocted by him and his quote unquote best friend, Ronald Gregory who is Irene's husband, who died in March 1961, so wasn't there to testify for Mm. himself. Moldavin said he never knew Ronald was actually going to mail the letter. It's a little bothersome that I couldn't find all the trial coverage on newspapers.com, just one or two stories like that, that reference other stories, but they're not there. So I'm not sure if anyone called bullshit on his stuff or even cross-examined him. Evelyn appeared in one photo his wife of five days, smiling with his mother, Sylvia, and was described as being a witness for the defense. So yeah, I'd like to know more. Thank goodness for the New York Daily News. While it doesn't answer all my questions, it has a nice long December 24th, 1961 full-page story about the trial with the headline, Too Many Lies. Mm. The story says that Evelyn, who by the end of 1961 was living in Palm Springs, California, told the Daily News, 
He's not capable of these things. He's the furthest from being a violent man from anyone huh. I have ever known. He's very gentle, very sentimental. When he's angry, he doesn't do anything. He just pouts until you talk him around again. And then he forgets all about it. Mm. The Daily News found that after deserting Irene Gregory in San Francisco on August 5th, Moldavin, who they refer to in the story as Rocky, flew to <laughs> Reno where he bought a sports car for $3,000 cash. He then mm. drove cross-country to Provincetown, Massachusetts, which is at the end of Cape Cod, for those of you who aren't familiar. There he told people he was a writer for a Vancouver newspaper, a magazine. He then went to New York and got the nose job. After he recovered, he drove to Key West, which is down at the bottom of Florida, and then back up to New York for a further nose adjustment. Mm. He signed a three-year lease on the Greenwich Village apartment, and then on November 30th was arrested by the FBI. Police said he broke down and cried when he was arrested mm. and insisted to Seattle Detective Herb Swindler a few days later that he did not kill Manzanita and Dolores. Then, the Daily News said, after he recovered his aplomb, he hinted that he may know what happened to them, but he'd mm. tell only when he chose to. Mm. By the time he returned to Seattle, he'd recovered his old self-confidence, the Daily News story said. He even had his lawyer, Leonard W. Schroeder, ask the judge for an injunction to stop police from questioning him in the King County Jail. And I'll let the Daily News take over from here, since they tell Ooh. the story exactly the way I would have. They are attempting to make me confess to a crime I did not commit, Rockwell complained. The injunction was granted that they couldn't question him in jail. The unlawful flight charge was dropped. King County District Attorney Charles O'Carroll admitted that he had no evidence to support a charge of murder. He could not identify the remains found in the septic tank. He could not say how she or they died, and he could not prove who killed her or them. So, last October, after 13 months in jail, Rockwell was brought to trial before Superior Court Judge Frank T. James on a charge of grand larceny. His mother, Mrs. Sylvia Da Silva Moldavin of <laughs> New York, she was in the courtroom. So was his brother, Michael Moldavin, a prominent economist from San Diego. <laughs> Evelyn Emerson Rockwell chatted with both. Now, ordinarily, defense counsel goes to any length to keep anything unsavory in a defendant's past away from the jurors if it has nothing to do with the charge against him. But Schroeder asked the first prospective juror, do you think he is a killer and mutilated human remains? There was a loud protest from Anthony Savage Jr., who was prosecutor. Schroeder replied that he knew this was not a murder trial, but... In the minds of most Washington citizenry, Rockwell is accused of a galaxy of horror. Mutton and mm. pork and a neighbor's false teeth were found in that tank, but yeah. no bodies. I have evidence that the second Mrs. Rockwell and her daughter were seen in Canada. Mm. After 12 jurors were seated, but not sworn, Schroeder said that the defendant waived his right to this poison panel and would depend solely on the wisdom of Judge James. So in Smart. other words, he had a bench trial. Schroeder further said that it was Rockwell, not Mrs. Winkler, who was buncoed. And so the trial for the grand larceny of $10,000 began. The Winklers told their stories and Mrs. Gregory told hers. James Garner, a Vancouver anthropologist, testified that color slides of Indian artifacts, which Rockwell showed the Winklers, were actually of a collection that had been broken up and was not for sale. The witness conceded that Rockwell had an excellent reputation in the antiques field, that few dealers in the Seattle area knew more about Indian artifacts. Question by Savage. Did he ever tell you he was born in the south of France? Up jumped Schroeder to protest. 
If the prosecution got into that field, he argued, the trial would last four or five weeks. The defense lawyer said he didn't want to go into the psyche or explain the dynamics of this complicated man. Hmm. Rockwell has amused and delighted people for 10 years with his storytelling, said Schroeder. No one believed him. There is a vast difference between the congenital liar and the wonderful storyteller. Sure, he fabricated, and he fabricated incredibly, but he (laughs) was honest in his business. I know. The high point of the trial was Rockwell's own testimony, telling why he was a liar, quote, in everything but business, unquote, and how he got into the mess he was in. It was an astounding defense. And again, this is the New York Daily News story saying this. He said he got off to a bad start as a child because he resented being a Jew and a foster child. His Hmm. foster brother, Michael Muldaven, went through Harvard Law School and then made a name for himself as an intelligence officer on General Douglas MacArthur's staff. Well, I... And then it has like a dash. He testified that he squeaked through high school Mm. and spent a few months at Alfred University, where one of our aunts went to nursing school. He was turned down for military service because of a bad leg and a ruptured eardrum. When he enrolled in the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York, according to his testimony, he decided to create a new identification for himself, an identification pattern in many ways on Michael's life. He changed his name and said he was a second lieutenant during World War II and had degrees from the University of California and the University of British Columbia. He claimed he had been part owner of a Havana hotel. The more he lied, the more he had to lie. After two unsuccessful marriages, he fell in love with Evelyn Emerson and decided to lie no more. I didn't want to go into the marriage like my previous two, he testified, having someone marry me knowing nothing about me. But somehow he kept right on lying. There was the time he felt self-conscious about his lack of military service because Evelyn's first husband had been in the French army. So Ron Gregory wrote the Major Riley letter for him. Of course, he hadn't expected Ron to mail it. There was a business about his Fulbright scholarship. His friend started that false rumor and he didn't deny it. There was a foolishness about his owning a boat. About the only thing he didn't lie about, Rockwell said, were the Indian artifacts. Early in 1960, he heard about that collection from a man named Terry Devlin in Vancouver. He gave Devlin $500 to act as a picker, or middleman, in acquisition of the collection. Well, he told Evelyn about it, and then Mrs. Winkler literally forced the $10,000 check on him. Question by Schroeder. Why did you finally agree to accept the loan? Answer. I have never been able to refuse women. (laughs) Rockwell testified that on August 3rd, he fully intended to go to British Columbia, but that very day Devlin appeared in Seattle and demanded $1,500. That made Rockwell uneasy, for he'd seen only slides of the collection and he didn't even know the identity of the seller. He told Devlin he'd have to have more information before he could pay out money. Devlin said okay, he'd be right back with someone who had the information, but Devlin never came back. And there I was with the $10,000, Rockwell continued sadly. I was expected to make money out of it. He decided to pick up some antiques in San Francisco, which he could sell for a quick profit. And then he thought of Irene Gregory, who had been begging him to take her to Portugal. He had wanted to tell her husband about her advances, but he just couldn't. Maybe if Ron discovered his wife in San Francisco, he'd find out what kind of girl she was. Rockwell denied he was running away from anyone, except Evelyn, maybe, because I had the tiger by the tail. I had a lot of explaining to do to her. Yes, he used an alias to buy the car in Reno, but I had a guy who flies and buys under assumed names all the time. 
He certainly was not trying to hide behind a straight nose or dyed no, hair. He'd not. been trying to get a straight nose since 1940. And he'd been dyeing his hair ever since the first fleck of gray appeared in it. The defendant was persuasive, and he might have been believed, had not Daniel Terrence Devlin, an antique dealer from Vancouver, taken the stand as an irate rebuttal witness. Devlin mm -hmm. shouted that he had never discussed a collection of Indian artifacts with Rockwell, had never received $500 grease money to act as a picker, had never demanded $1,500 from Rockwell on August 3rd. He could prove that he was in Vancouver that day, not in Seattle. In summation, on Rockwell's 38th birthday, Schroeder pleaded, he deserves our compassion, not our vindictiveness and our malice. Savage roared, his behavior is in the classic pattern of a confidence man. Mm -hmm. Judge James found Rocky guilty of grand larceny, a, right, conviction which, a conviction which carries a maximum sentence of 15 years imprisonment. Immediately thereafter, District Attorney Carroll filed a first-degree perjury charge against Rockwell because of his testimony concerning Devlin. This is a vindictive act, Schroeder, the defense lawyer declared. This is the first time I've ever heard of a perjury charge in a criminal case. If a person is convicted, it's assumed he lied. You don't use perjury. <laughs> I know. You gotta love these lawyers. You don't use perjury except as an instrument of vengeance. At any rate, Rockwell will be around quite a while in case he has moved to tell somebody about what happened to Manzanita Rockwell and Dolores Mearns. And that's the Daily News story. Judge Frank D. James could have sentenced Guy to 15 years in prison, but in a March 1962, sentenced him to 15 years suspended <clears throat> on condition he repay his mother-in-law the $10,000. He'd been in jail since he was returned to Seattle in December 1960. So he'd been in jail about a year and a half. <clears throat> the judge was a little reluctant on the sentence, saying he imposed it though he knew Muldaven was a suspect of a much more serious crime. It is my duty to completely eliminate the fact that I know what the suspicions are of our police department in our community, he said. Saying he has to ignore that fact, but still, I mean, the guy fled. He did, I you know. know. Rockwell's brother, Michael, now living in San Diego, said the family would be happy to take him in and rehabilitate mm, him. Evelyn, that. his wife of five days was living in San Diego too. And she said she'd be happy to take him back. Oh, for crying just, out loud. Just a couple months before, by the way, Michael had been disbarred in New Mexico in order never to practice law there again, charged with misconduct for commingling his own money with client settlement Ooh. money, embezzling and more. Michael had offered to voluntarily give up his license rather than be disbarred. But when an attorney in New Mexico is accused of misconduct, he can't voluntarily give up his license yeah. to go through the process. A 1965 article in the Arizona Daily Star newspaper says Michael was appointed to administer, this is Michael, not Guy, the Kerr Mills Federal State Medical Care Program for the aged in Arizona after recently earning a master's of public health from the University of California. The legislature <laughs> had approved 79000 for administrative costs. Michael would be making 11640 a year. The money that would be distributed was close to $400,000. No mention at all of him being disbarred in neighboring New Mexico a few years before for hijinks involving clients' money. Yeah, just the guy you'd want running a money-distributing no program. In fact, Michael's legal problems go back to 1958 or maybe farther. But the first thing I could find was in April 1958, a little story appeared in the Albuquerque Journal 
St. Hena's wife, Erica, were being sued for $1,031 by the Farmers Home Administration as a federal government organization for defaulting on a loan. In December 1958, he was listed in the lawsuits list in the Albuquerque Journal as being sued by Streisa von Skyver for defaulting on a $10,000 promissory note. In January 1960, there was a small article in the Albuquerque Tribune that he was charged with two separate counts of embezzling from a client. And that was the one he ended up getting disbarred for a couple years later. And by the time he was disbarred, it was up to four embezzlement charges. The DA at the time in January 1960 said he believed Michael had left New Mexico for California. Meanwhile, Guy did move to the Los Angeles area after his sentencing. It's not clear how much contact Guy had with his family after the sentencing and what the promised rehabilitation efforts were, if anything. He remarried Evelyn on August 10, 1963 in Los Angeles, so they must have gotten a divorce at some point. Call me cynical, but I wonder how much of him remarrying her was a way to get out of paying her mother back the $10,000. Guy found a job managing a Rodeo Drive Beverly Hills company that sold fine china and silver dining ware. And he's not heard from again in the newspapers until in June 1969 when he appears smiling in a photo in the Valley Times, a North Hollywood newspaper, presenting a check for $100 to a woman who won a Best Dressed Table contest. He then appears once in a while in newspaper articles, usually in some kind of promotional way. For instance, in a Newsweek feature service article in December 1970 that ran in newspapers all over the country with the headline, Consumers Appear to be Buying Practical Gifts This Christmas, and at the time there was a recession, by the way, Guy, who is executive vice president of David Orgel, Inc., as I said, the Beverly Hills Rodeo Drive China and Silver dealer, said of the recession, I sincerely feel we sometimes make our own recessions. Mm. What really gets to me is when the management of most department stores comes out in the local papers and makes statements about how lousy Christmas is going to be. Moldavin, on the other hand, says, so far, business is so wonderful, I almost feel apologetic. We're going to be running 15 to 20% ahead. In a similar story the following year in the Los Angeles Times that ran in newspapers all over the country, his company is described as a four-store chain of posh crystal and silver shop. Moldavin says that a line of sculpture in agate and rock crystals set with diamonds, rubies, and emeralds is selling as though it's something people picked up every day, unquote, even though it's priced at $6,000 to $10,000. Wow. And to me, that sounds like a salesman talking up some ugly shit he can't get rid of. His mother's name also periodically comes up. By now, it appears she's living on the family's ranch about 25 miles south of Las Vegas, New Mexico, not Nevada. Can be confusing, which is just east of Santa Fe. Most of the stuff is she's a member of some conservation committee and does conservation work and seems to do socialite type parties and events. Over the Christmas weekend, though, in 1971, her house was burgled, according to the Las Vegas Optic, the local newspaper. Christmas packages and a saddle were stolen. It was one of three burglaries in the area over the weekend, and two of them, including hers, the burglar got into the house by breaking windows, and saddles were stolen from both her house and the other house. Guns were stolen from the other house. In the third burglary, someone walked into an unlocked house and took green stamps, a Zenith color TV, electric percolator, and clothes. So my feeling is the third one was somebody else, some poor person looking Mm -hmm. for Christmas presents. Sylvia Moldavin died in 1972. 
Frequently between 1970 and 1974, classified ads appear in L.A. newspapers seeking saleswomen for Moldavian store. That's back when classifieds were gender separated mm-hmm. job mm. ads. And he's always looking for female salespeople. They're asked to contact Mr. Moldavian or Guy Moldavian, and they appear pretty regularly. But after May 1973, they stop appearing, and there are no more reference to him no more quotes from him in that job or anything else. So at some point, he must have divorced Evelyn. Or she probably realized what a mistake it was to marry him a second time. <laughs> On February 19th, 1974, he married Terry Marie Vizina in Reno, Nevada, And then he married Phyllis Roper on October 18th, 1975 in L.A. Phyllis, who sometimes went by the hyphenated name Smurl Moldavin, was an artist, and her name appears in L.A. area papers over the years for showings and community work. And her family seems quite wealthy. Her parents had a 50th anniversary party to which Pierre Trudeau, who was then Mm. the Prime Minister of Canada, sent his congratulations. So Nice. On November 18th, 1975, a legal ad appears in the Las Vegas Optic, the newspaper in Las Vegas, New Mexico, not Nevada, where Moldavian's mother had lived and the ranch was. Guy is suing his brother Michael, apparently over, I think, the ranch, looking for a separation of property And my guess is his mother left the ranch to Michael and Guy wants a share of it. It's not clear what happened with that. On February 1st, 1977, the LA Times in its radio listing says satirical author Guy Muldaven will appear on the KCRW-FM show Dimension. Yes, satirical author. Because in 1976, Muldaven wrote a satirical cookbook, Cooking with Rump Oil. Hmm. It's actually, from what I could tell, kind of a disturbing book with his own drawings that aren't that good in it. And one recipe, and keep this in mind for later in this story, is called Cape Cod Shid. Shid, S-H-I-D. In part, it reads, out of the water and into the pan, the sweet turpentine taste will turn to that of burnt glove and the tender look will become one of despair. The obviously hand-drawn picture with it looked to me at first like the upside-down head of a woman with long hair screaming, but I guess it could also look like some kind of right-side-up squid-type thing or something. And at the Mm. bottom it says, don't cook the shit out of it. A shit is a four-foot piece of lumber, but the word hasn't been used for some time. More recently, it's street for shit, but I don't think it was in the 1970s. In any Mm. case... That entry is probably a little leakage on Moldavian's part. You may be aware of where this episode is going, but if you're not, remember that cookbook Mm. recipe. By the mid-1980s, Guy was a volunteer host on a late-night talk radio show at station KAZU 90.3 FM in Salinas, California. In a lengthy feature article on him on July 5th, 1985, with the headline, This Guy Can Gab... The reporter for the Californian newspaper, Hope Bell, paints him as a talkative eccentric. Guy coyly won't say his age, just that he's over 60. He's He'd actually be 63 when this article appeared. He said that he had a major life transition nine years before, which would be 1975 or 76, when he decided to leave his executive job. I wonder how much of that decision was his, since he's such a lying liar all the time. Mm-hmm. 
Among his varied accomplishments since in the past nine years, he lists his cookbook, Cooking with Rump Oil, being a devil's advocate on Jerry Brown's presidential campaign, and volunteering Mm. to help youth through the Santa Monica Police Department with a writing project. He also claims to have lost his shirt, meaning all his money, on a venture in the recording industry. His current money-making job, when he was this volunteer radio DJ or host, was as a clerk at Marco Polo's Pizza and at Plaza Pipe and Tobacco, both in the Carmel Plaza. On his Colin show, he engaged with people on such things as Social Security, Alzheimer's, and old people having sex. Yeah. It started out as a show of issues for old people, but he also got a mix of young listeners. And so the topics also cover things like dealing with homosexuality, the erosion of culture, and Guy's belief that killing has become a habit. And to that last one, I say, can we elaborate, please? I mean, talk about leakage. Obviously, this reporter didn't know about his past. This is pre-internet. But she doesn't elaborate on what he means by that at all. I know. She writes, his face crinkles with a smile as he says, I even need to say, look out. I even need to say we have to take some active participation in what's going on. I'm old enough to remember us. I'm old enough to remember this country. And the change is heartbreaking. Mm. Unfortunately, the reporter doesn't ask him what the fuck he's talking about. <laughs> and I'm not even talking about him being a murderer and stuff. I mean, I know what the fuck is he referring to? She doesn't I know. Seem to On one show, his topic is real play and fantasy. And he tells some half-assed idiotic story about how in September 1978, four million extraterrestrials landed in his nostril because Earth... <laughs> Because Earth wasn't suitable, but his his head was perfect or some shit, and he calls that real play. He tells the reporter later that fantasy and make-believe have always been a big part of his life because they bring out the best in him. He calls the extraterrestrials that are in his nose the people, with capital Mm. letters, and says when he needs to work something out, he talks to them or to teddy bears. Ugh. He says, now a psychiatrist would say all you're doing is talking to yourself, but the problem with me talking to myself is I'm so weird and scattered that it doesn't work. But if I talk to the bears or talk to the people or some other creatures, it works for me. Hmm. He said he originally wanted to do a show about aging because of the age discrimination he experienced when trying to find a job when he moved to Salinas. He said despite, quote, 30 years as a buyer with major stores, unquote, The only job the agency could get him was a Santa Claus at a department store. Now, as you all know, I'm not awesome at math, but this was 1985. He quit his job, he says, nine years before, so that would bring us to 1976 or 75. He wasn't any buyer for any store, but a shitty antique shop before 1960. (laughs) And after that, he spent three years dealing with his fraud charges, some of that in jail. And then he moved to L.A. So at best, if he was a buyer, he was a buyer for maybe 10 years. I mean, he he worked for that crystal and silver store for at most possible 10 years. The guy just can't tell the truth. So maybe it wasn't age, but it was his lying shit that made him have trouble getting a job. But now here's the best leakage in that interview of all. He said to the reporter that only working at clerk entry-level jobs at his age makes him morally suspect. If you're at my age and you're going to take a lousy job, you have either been in prison or is there Hmm. something mentally wrong with you or you are drunk. Hmm, I'll take A with a little (laughs) bit of B thrown in. At the end of the article, he says no matter what he's doing, he's always fantasizing. 
we have a responsibility to fantasize for those people who have not been given the opportunity to fantasize. Mm. He said if people can imagine and really feel the end of discrimination or world hunger or the start of world peace, it will happen. Quote, if you really okay. create, things start happening, unquote. You know what that sounds like to me, Becky? Visualization! Yes, visualization. And it's a favorite of murderers, I guess. Yeah. Well, he kind of reminds me in some right, ways. of that guy, yeah. What was that episode? The Mad Sculptor. The Mad I Sculptor. That was what... a while back, yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, also in 1985, despite the fact that Michael, Guy's brother, was now managing healthcare foundations in California and frequently Jeez. quoted in newspapers in the Berkeley area where he lived... The IRS ran a legal ad in the Santa Fe, New Mexico newspaper saying it's seizing what I think is their mother's ranch, which is now owned by Michael for failure to pay taxes, and it's putting it up for sale. And that would have to be income or capital gains tax since property taxes are not IRS territory. The IRS is offering the ranch out for bid. It's a 22,000-acre ranch with three houses on it. In January 1986... This is a few months after that. The Kansas Land Bank sued Michael Moldavin, his wife, the IRS, and a bunch of other defendants for unpaid mortgage, I think also on the ranch. Interestingly, the mortgage was taken out in September 1978, and that was the same time that the extraterrestrials went into Guy's nostril. I don't know if one has to do with the other. Yeah, you never know. It just seems specific that that's when those extraterrestrials went into his... Nostril, but I don't think Guy ever got a share of the ranch despite his suit in 1975 because he's not named in any of the lawsuits yeah, having to do with the ranch. Be, Maybe would... September 1978 is when he lost the suit, and that's why Michael and his wife took out a mortgage on the ranch. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, Guy died in March 2002. His obituary only listed his wife, Phyllis, and a sister. Joan Towers, even though he, it must be her sister because he didn't have any sisters. His brother died in 2005, so he was still alive. And while Guy was living his crazy getting away with murder life across the country in Tennessee, Ruth Marie Terry was looking for adventure. Ruth was born in 1936. She loved her family and friends, just oozed love, uh, relatives said. But she also wanted to explore the world. She knew there was more to life outside of Whitehall, Tennessee. She was married in 1956 to Billy Ray Smith. After that ended in the late 1960s, she left home to travel the country. She always kept in touch with her family, though. In 1973, she told them she had a boyfriend, Guy Muldaven. She even brought him home to Tennessee to visit, but her family wasn't very impressed. Mm. Her great-niece, Brittany Navanglaski, told NBC10 in Boston that Ruth wasn't herself when she was with Guy, and she was almost inaccessible after she started dating him. They Mm. couldn't reach her, and when they were around, he acted like he owned her and she was his property. In April 1974, Terry came home to Tennessee for a visit with family without Guy, but they were still dating and living in California, she said. What she didn't tell them was that they were more than dating. Using the name Terry Marie Vizina, she'd married Moldavin on February 19, 1974 in Reno, Nevada in a civil ceremony. That summer, her family stopped hearing from her and they became worried. Mm. When they called Guy in California looking for her, he told them she'd taken all her belongings and taken off. Ruth's family didn't believe, even if she'd left Guy, which I think they were in favor of, that she wouldn't be in touch with them because she'd always kept in touch. 
Mm-hmm. Her father went to California and he hired a private detective to find out what had happened. The private detective found out that all her belongings had been sold. Then Moldavia <laughs> told him that that's because she actually joined a cult and left the state. Oh. They weren't able to find out anymore. Ruth's family, including her sister, never stopped looking for her. And they died never knowing what happened to her. The generation, her sister and her parents and her grandmother. Tennessee is a long way from Cape Cod in Massachusetts, more than 1,100 miles. So it wasn't even a blip on the Terry family's radar when, on July 26, 1974, Leslie Metcalf was walking her dog on the beach near Provincetown, Massachusetts, the farthest town out on Cape Cod, when her dog went running toward a bundle. Leslie at first thought it was a deer. Then she thought it was a lady sunbathing because it didn't have any clothes on. No, no, no. Because no one who sees a dead body thinks right away that it's a dead body. But that's what it was. Mm. The woman's body was lying face down on a green beach blanket. She was partially decomposed. They guessed she'd been there for about two weeks and it was a hot summer. But they could still tell she'd been brutally beaten. Her face smashed in. She was nearly decapitated, possibly from strangulation. A blow to the side of her head that crushed it is what killed her. There were also signs of sexual assault with a block of wood, which likely happened after her death. And I wondered if that's where the shid, Cape Cod shid, came from. Oh. Since a shid is a piece of wood. Her hands were chopped off, one almost to the elbow, to prevent identification by fingerprints. And investigators believe a lot of the damage to her face, including her teeth being smashed, was for the same reason. She had extensive extensive and expensive dental work but with the damage to her teeth it was hard to identify and they couldn't use her dental work and stuff to try to get an identification for her there's no sign of a struggle so they guess she was either asleep or knew her attacker she had long reddish hair worn in a ponytail and her toenails were painted pink under her head were a blue bandana and a pair of wrangler jeans she could have been anywhere between 20 to 40. Her body was in a little stand of trees, not necessarily visible to many people, and that part of the Cape, the dunes, is fairly remote. There were two sets of footprints around the scene, but the one walking away disappeared about 50 feet from it. Investigators also thought it was possible she was killed somewhere else and placed where she was found later, and that's why nobody had come across her before. Provincetown police searched through missing person cases, recent cars seen in the area that were stopped, suspicious people and more but couldn't find out anything she was buried after the investigation hit a dead end october 1974 in st peter's cemetery in provincetown massachusetts her gravestone said unidentified female body found race point dunes july 26 1974 she became known as the lady of the dunes over the years she was exhumed three times in 1980, for an additional examination, in 2000 to see if DNA could teach them anything, and in 2010 so they could do a CAT scan on her skull, which allowed a reconstruction through NamUs, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which does those age-generated images of people. They also did a clay facial reconstruction in 1979, which became an enduring image to many New Englanders familiar with the story. As with all of these long old legendary cold cases they take on a life of their own and there are many theories and false leads over the years some of the biggest were 
In the late 1970s, police had a theory that maybe she was Rory Jean Kessinger, who disappeared after escaping from the Plymouth County Jail in 1973 in Plymouth, Massachusetts, which is at the right before the Cape starts on the South Shore. Kessinger, 24, had been arrested for robbery and assault. While in jail, someone had slipped her a hacksaw blade, which she used to cut the bars on her window, then climbed down using tied-together sheets where someone was waiting to drive her away. That was a real old school escape. To hear police tell it, she was never seen again, though who knows how hard anyone was looking. This theory was discarded, though it's not clear from newspaper accounts why. I don't know if Rory ever showed up or they just figured it didn't fit, but that's something that they considered. In the year 2000, Serial killer Haddon Clark told a reporter from The New Yorker that he was visiting his grandfather in Wellfleet on the Cape when he, quote, came across a beautiful girl in Provincetown and went into one of my episodes, unquote. Mm. He was at the time and still is, I believe, in prison in Maryland for killing a six-year-old girl in 1986 Mm. and a 23-year-old in 1992. He also confessed to killing Sarah Pryor of Wayland, Mass., who disappeared in October 1985, and confessed to several other unsolved Massachusetts murders. After his confessions, police brought him to Massachusetts to help look for bodies he said he'd buried. Of course, they didn't find any. According to the Boston Globe, they did find a bucket of jewelry buried at his grandfather's house that he said came from his victims. Hmm. But now there's another suspect in the Sarah Pryor case. And my guess is he was just confessing to shit because he was bored and wanted some attention and a road trip. The Cape Cod Times also pointed out recently that his history of paranoid schizophrenia led police to doubt his credibility, Hmm. which I say, um, duh. He's not the first serial killer that Providence police looked at. Another one they liked for it for a while was Tony Chop Chop Costa. (laughs) But then, after looking at that for a little while, they realized he died by suicide in 1970, so he couldn't have done it. In 2014, author Sandra Lee, a native of the Cape, gave more credence to a popular theory that had been going around that the killer was none other than infamous Boston gangster Whitey Bulger. Mm. Bulger was a regular at the Crown and Anchor, an LGBTQ Provincetown hangout. And for those of you who don't know, Provincetown is and was back then one of the top gay spots in the world, probably, right? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. So Whitey was a regular at the Crown and Anchor, an LGBTQ Provincetown hangout, in a place where, in the aftermath of the body find, People said they saw a woman who could have been her, and people also said that the green beach blanket could have been from the Crown and Anchor, which also had an inn attached to it, though I couldn't find the blanket thing in any police information or if they were checked. The footprint found at the scene was supposedly a size 10 shoe, which was Whitey's size. Oh. He liked to extract his victim's teeth, and the lady in the dune's teeth were pulled out. Lee, the author, told journalist Sam Beltrusis of Boston Spirit Magazine in 2014, quote, At the time, people weren't on to Whitey's trips to Provincetown. It was his playground, and no one knew he was doing half the things he was doing there. It was the perfect place for the disposal of a body, unquote. Mm. In the 2000s, as more came out about Whitey, his penchant for a secret lifestyle came out. But back in the 70s, with Bulger ruling the roost in Boston, it wouldn't have been talked about. In 1982, Staniford Sorrentino, the former owner of the Crown and Anchor, during a tax evasion trial, 
brought up Bulger and said that he had been a regular overnight guest. The Crown and Anchor also had an in, as I pointed out. Lee, the author, told the journalist Beltrusis that her stepfather was a violent alcoholic who would spend nights at the Crown and Anchor with Bulger while her family camped at Dunes Edge Campground, which is near where the Lady in the Dunes was found. Quote, my stepfather would stumble into the campsite during the wee morning hours. He was always inebriated and disheveled, often bruised and bloody, and sometimes wearing a green <laughs> cotton blanket around his shoulders, which he'd taken from the inn, she said. By the way, Lee also claimed at the time that she was nine when the lady in the dunes was found and claimed that she came across the body a couple days before that other girl they were camping at Dunes Edge. But, and she had a very traumatized childhood and she wrote a novel or a memoir, I'm not sure which, called Shanty, that I think is about mm. some of that. She isn't the first one to bring up the Bulger connection to the Lady in the Dunes. The Provincetown Police Department had said over the years that several witnesses and photographs placed Bulger in the area at the time of the murder, Beltrusis wrote. Several reports surfaced in March 2012, possibly linking Bulger to the Lady of the Dunes case, he said. Detective Meredith K. Lober told WCVB in 2012 that since Whitey had been captured, and for those of you who don't know, he was an FBI top 10 wanted fugitive for 16 years and was finally captured in California. But Meredith, the detective, said, what our hope is that with his capture and imprisonment and his age, that someone will be able to finally come forward. Former Providence Police Chief Jeff Jaron who Beltrusis writes supposedly spent his career trying to crack the Lady of the Dunes case. I don't know why he uses the word supposedly. <laughs> but the police chief said the coincidences that he was down here during that time, the manner in which this woman was murdered, we will make contact with federal prosecutors. Hmm. But Beltrusis adds, several months later, Jaron was fired for being a toxic bully. Though I don't think that necessarily means he was wrong about Bulger, you know, even though it turns out he was. Lee said people were afraid to come forward because of Whitey. Quote, my take is that there's still someone here in Provincetown who knows it was Whitey or his gang, but doesn't want that information out. Lee said Meredith, the detective, claims to be all about solving the case, but I got quite another impression, unquote. <laughs> Giving credence to this theory, or maybe not, is that the blue bandana found at the crime scene was an old school gay hanky code of the 1970s used to identify cops. Beltrusis points out. Seems a little stretched to me. A lot of people have mm -hmm. blue bananas. The Bulger theory was something people like to talk about, but never gained much real traction, even after his trial and all the stuff that came out of it when Lady in the Dunes was just not part of the huge amount of information of all the horrible things he did. Ugh. One of my personal favorite theories was more recent. In 2018, author Joe Hill, who is the mm. son of Stephen King, put forth theory that the Lady of the Dunes had been an extra on the movie Jaws, which was filmed on Martha's Vineyard in the summer of 1974, which is off Cape Cod, and you have to go to Cape Cod to take a ferry to get there. There's a crowd scene with a woman wearing a blue bandana who looked a lot like the CAT scan reproduction, and this was all the rage for a few days with pictures in the Boston Globe and people talking about it. And it was fairly recent, so I remember it well. Yeah. But, of course, that theory wasn't right either. On October 31st, just a few weeks ago, the Boston office of the FBI announced they'd identified the Lady of the Dunes. Mm. She was Ruth Marie Terry, identified through investigative genealogy 
which combines the use of DNA analysis with traditional genealogy research and historical records to generate investigative leads for unsolved crimes. They have not gone into great detail about how they came up with her, except for that general explanation. The case is being investigated as a homicide by the Massachusetts State Police assigned to the Office of the Cape and Islands District Attorney, the Provincetown Police Department, and the FBI. When they made the announcement, they asked the public for any information they may have on Ruth. On November 3rd, they made a joint statement asking for information on Guy Muldaven and pointed out that he was also known to use the names Raul Guy Rockwell and Guy Muldaven Rockwell. Guy was familiar with Cape Cod. Not only was it one of the places he fled to in 1960 after he left Seattle, but his parents owned vacation property there in the 1940s and 50s. It was just earth-shattering to know that somebody so beautiful and so loved and so bright was taken like that, Brittany Navanglosky, Ruth's great-niece, told NBC10 Boston. She was just brutalized and left that way with no dignity. Brittany added, it's very, very sad for us because she was up there for 50 years all by herself. And as I said, her family had never given up looking. And yet, you know, the connection was never made. Navanklosky said she wants people to know that Ruth was loved and beautiful and deserves justice. And I'll add, that goes for Manzanita and Dolores Mearns, Henry Baird, and Barbara Kelly. All murders that have still never been solved. Wow. And that is my account. I could have just done a whole thing on the Lady of the Dunes, but I wanted to go from the angle of Guy Muldaven. And I know people are like, oh, you have to focus on the victim, blah, blah, blah. But it's another thing where people don't understand how dangerous a person is and how somebody gets away with so much shit. You know, oh, we knew he was full of shit, but he was so charming and everything kind of thing. And it's frightening, too. I read somewhere, I can't remember where, and I've looked for it and can't find it, but I knew it was bullshit at the time that, like, up until the mid-1960s, almost all murders were solved. And the person was complaining about, like, nowadays. Yeah. And I'm like, how the fuck did they ever solve anything? Because unless somebody's standing there with a gun saying, yeah, I did it. Unless, you know, they were just railroading innocent people. I or, think a lot, it was either that or who knows how many Or were, planting evidence yeah. or bullying people into confessing. But with this, you look at how different the investigations of the body parts and the septic tank, they'd be able to find out through DNA who they were yeah. at least. And the legs and the river, who we don't even know if that's connected yeah we don't even know if that's manzanita or not we don't know what he i mean washington is a big state with a lot of remote areas it was months before anybody thought they were missing and then henry baird and barbara joe kelly he was found a couple days after he was killed you'd think nowadays there'd be some evidence they would 10 years later they had absolutely no idea who could have done it until Moldavin took off and was in the news and they're like oh that guy was here when this happened you know obviously murders weren't they weren't all solved they might have found somebody to blame i know um that doesn't count probably people who have bodies that they found that they couldn't determine how they died and you wonder too if he did kill ruth terry which seems very likely what else i mean that was 14 years between oh yeah 
And how many other people did he come across that got right. this way and it or didn't something? Sound, right, and it didn't sound like they were murders of circumstance where, oh shit, I have to kill this person because whatever. It sounds like he either enjoyed killing people or or they just or just or wanted he or to get wanted rid to of erase them, of them like yeah. an eraser killer. Yeah. The amount of leakage in that in that 1985 interview and stuff is a little freakish. In that. that cookbook, the Cape Cod shid, why did he use a word like shid to make it sound like scrod or something? But why use that word? And then it's an old word for a piece of wood. And there was, she had been assaulted with a piece That's of wood. So weird. And as an antique stealer and stuff, he would know a term yeah. like that. You know, I'm just guessing because why else? I think it was Channel 10 in Boston got hold of a copy of the book because they had a picture of that page, which I'll put on our website with that recipe. It's not even a recipe. It's like the book is so it's supposed to be the satire and it's just childish. It's like something a 12 year old boy would do. Talk about like total leakage. Why? Ah, Well, it's arrogant. It's like Jimmy Savile when he getting interviewed. It's almost like he wants to brag brag about what he did. Yeah. You can't very well. You wonder what he thought about the whole lady in the dunes right mystery if, if he knew about uh, it i, I mean, bet he knew about it he died in 2002 Two. you forget get before the internet i mean we know about it because it's referenced in like yeah. the Boston globe and on tv and stuff but if you're living in california your entire life and you're not there's no internet and shit i don't know yeah well, I that was so. very interesting yeah. thank yeah. you were you yeah, oh, you knew what I was doing, right? So it's not like... I knew, but I didn't know. Like, oh, I you only know knew that it was a woman that I figured her husband had killed her. That day when I texted you the story and I said, oh, the late, they figured out who yes, the I was, was. And you said, yeah, I bet the husband did it. And, yeah, but and little always, did I know it was a friggin' well, serial killer right? husband. Well, little did anyone know. But I have always said, and I know this is kind of an obvious thing, so it's not like I'm this genius or anything. The only... People who want to disguise someone's identity are someone connected to the person who was killed. Yeah. So it's not a random stranger killer. If somebody cuts off somebody's hands, now it's pointless because of DNA. You can find out who someone is. I know. It doesn't but you, matter. But you look at the fact like that cop in, in Seattle went up to Vancouver. to He couldn't even find out Manzanita and Dolores' blood types. They must not have written them down. Or, yeah. I mean, I guess there are people who don't know their blood types now, but it's like, how do they even conduct a friggin' investigation? People just got away with murder left and right. Like, look at that one I did on the guy, no, I can't remember his name, who killed a bunch of people in the Midwest and stuff, including that girl whose hair they found in Colorado. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and the people remember. in California, he killed all sorts of people. DNA did him in. He was just going around the country, just killing and raping and Good. with abandon. Um, I, I think it's great. And so this weekend when we were at Crime Bake, well, her last name was Press. Is that Margaret her Press. Margaret Press. But yeah, she does knows. that kind of investigation. Identifies. And she said there are 50,000 bodies, right. unidentified bodies. She said that's probably an underestimate. Yeah, I'm you sure know. it is. Yeah. And yeah, and she went through an explanation of the difference between investigative genealogy, which they use for this, and then the kind of thing where they have somebody's DNA and ancestors' mm-hmm. DNA and blah, blah, blah. But it's just too long and involved to. Yeah, it was pretty here, interesting. But, but hey, do you have an NNW? I do. Why don't we do that? Okay.
This one is an interesting one because (laughs) as opposed to our other, it's kind of a different one because I'm going to do kind of a book TV show comparison. Oh, 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 because is it magpie murder? Yeah, but I won't give any spoilers. Okay. Cause I I've only watched the first two episodes cause I want to binge it. Okay. Well, I won't give any spoilers Okay. okay. You can do it without spoiling it. Okay. So calm yourself. I was already reading the book magpie murders and I didn't even realize there was going to be a show. And the book is by Anthony Horowitz. He was a screenwriter for midsummer murders. And I don't know what else he's, he's done a bunch of crap. Stuff. Yeah, Foils war. Foils war. Yeah. But anyways, I was reading this. I was almost done with it. And then the show is on PBS. It's on the Masterpiece Theater. Mom wanted to watch it. And so I started watching the show too. And it was good because in a way it was good because the book was still fresh in my mind, but in another way it wasn't. So I'm going to kind of go through. I'll use the NNW thing. I'll work it around. So I'm going to kind of compare them to each other. So bad reenactments, obviously not, doesn't apply. Narrative cliches. So the way the book is set up, it's almost like it's two books. The first half is the book within a book. The first part of it is a mystery book, like an Agatha Christie type mystery. The second part is a modern day mystery story about the author of that book dying and his editor trying to find out what happened to him. So you kind of do have to read the whole book within a book because it's referenced in the other. The book within the book is very traditional Agatha Christie style mystery. So within that, there are some probably narrative cliches because he's borrowing from her style. Right. Probably almost deliberate. It is deliberate and it's part of the story. So, so I'm not taking any points off, but if you're reading it, I'm just thinking if somebody's reading the first part and they're like, Ugh, this is really kind of derivative. There's a reason for right. it. Uh, racial gender obtuseness. I'm t- I was going to take a point off, but I'm not because in the book, yes, because none of the characters seem to be people of color, but in the show, about half of the characters yeah, that's one of the knocks on him like midsummer murders and all that they're very non-diverse and i'll go into it in storytelling because the tv shows are a lot different than the book as far as how they tell the story but the characters are all different ethnicities so that's nice lack of good visuals it's got good visuals the beautiful countryside. I think the casting's okay. Uh, there's some good good people in some. Since I just read the book, I was just like, nah. Like the guy who plays uh, Atticus Pound, who's the uh, yeah. German-born uh, detective in the book, fake book, the fiction book in right. the fiction. We know what he's supposed to look like because the author wanted Ben Kingsley to play him in a tv mm, show which looks nothing like none looks not but the actor that plays him is good so yeah missing pieces i'm taking a point off for the show and i know that they can't put everything in but i feel like some of the choices they they consolidated characters and changed the story mm. a bit and i don't think you really need to if it's in a tv show instead of a movie 
Right. I think in a movie, you probably do have to do that. I don't know if it's really necessary in a TV show. So I'm taking a point off. Inaccuracy and acronisms also taking a point off because of the same thing. I just feel like some of the, the changes in the in the story details, I would count them as inaccuracies, not anachronisms. I just feel like it wasn't it wasn't necessary. Storytelling, like I said, they do it different ways. Instead of switching off chapters, which he could have done in the book, a chapter of the book within a book, and then going to present day and then going back. Right, which the do- show kind of does. The show does do that. That's what I'm saying. They do it in two different ways. It seems to work. I think it works better on the on TV because they're using the same actors to play certain people in the book because he was putting people that he didn't like, he wanted to, you know, right. Stick it to to. in the book. So it's kind of a shorthand for the viewer. You can see, Oh, that's who that guy was. I was going to say, I haven't read the book, but Mm -hmm. it would be harder to make it flow well and to make the pieces fit. And actually that isn't even much of an issue in the book. I think both of them work. The thing I liked about the way he did the book is that you get to the end of that you read that whole 200 and something pages and as you know from the tv show the last chapter's missing so you don't know that you get to the end just like every those characters did you get to the and then right. you, you don't know how that mystery ended and then it goes into the to the present day so you do get a resolution at the end but you get to like to page right. 200 and something and then you're like, well, what the hell? So I thought that was, I thought it was a good way of doing because I think you're more invested in it. And then you start the other book and you want her to find it, find those, that last chapter too. Because yes. you want to know how it ended. Good storytelling freshness too. And again, more for the book. I think it's kind of brave of him to have done it that way just because it's not the way you normally see books you normally see it oh right. you know this put, chapter is night put it this way only a only a famous author could do it yeah if, if a debut author wrote that and tried to submit it it would take a very brave it's, agent and publisher to it's very it's yeah, when i was reading i'm like are they going to ever get to the modern day one? Because right. I've been reading this one because I just expected that format. Right. Repetition, no. And beating the drum, no. So I gave it an eight. Both of them an eight. They're both good. They're different from each other. And I think that I would have liked it better if the TV show was a little bit more edgy or something I can't explain it. It seems, you know, we we watch a lot of the British crime shows and I feel like it's not as... Although his aren't. Foils War and Midsummer Murders and... The book was, I thought the book was good though. Like I'm enjoying the TV show too. But I wish I had read the book a little bit long. I don't like it when I've just read the book because then you notice every single thing that's different and you're just like, oh, it drives you nuts. I do like the fact that they diversified the cast because there's no reason not to. A lot of the British shows do that now, much more so than American shows. Yeah, I I would say so. And I notice another thing with a lot of the British shows is they have more than one person of color. Like on American shows, shows, it's like, okay, we have our black 
person. And there are people that would say, well, there's no way in 1955 in an English village there would be an interracial marriage. So, right. It's not a documentary. It doesn't matter. So, if somebody's reading the book, they can picture whoever they want playing those people. I'd be interested to know if Black people, if when they read a book and it doesn't specify race, who are they picturing? What are they picturing? Some of our listeners. Yeah. I was reading something where I pictured the woman as being black and I got like halfway through the book and then they said something about, and I still, it didn't change how I pictured her, but they said something about her blonde her hair, blue eyes, something about her that, and I was like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Cause I'm halfway through now. Right. So she is oh, what she is. She is what she is. Right. In my mind. And it doesn't really matter. Um, a lot of characters it makes no difference and i do like the fact in the tv show where they have the same actors because it's funny you'll see the person in the present day part because it starts with that and then when you see the person in the book when they pop up a few (laughs) a few episodes later and it's like oh i like that took me a little while to realize some people because they're so different I know characters are so different like who was who but I liked it and I like the woman that plays Susan is that her name Susan I don't know I've only watched two episodes and it was weeks ago the main character although she's like probably about 20 years older than the character in the book but that doesn't really matter you know men just write young females and they don't have to be young she's good she and the woman that plays her sister she was in secrets and lies yes and I like the fact that she's like a normal they're more normal looking people in British shows than they do in American shows. They don't shows. care. That's they don't care as like much how them. people look because they can't because they're an Um. Yeah, I think you better cut that part out. Okay. But anyways, we should probably go. Yes, I'm going to go to bed. Me too. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you, everybody. And I'm next. You are. I can't wait. Yeah. Okay, okay two good weeks. Good night. Bye. This one that Bob, um, what's the comedian? He's Jewish. I can picture him too. And he goes, he was Shylock in the Merchant of Venice yes. play there. And he's like, I am a Jew. Does not a Jew bleed? And the and he says to the audience, no. I, now, since I can't remember his name, I'm going to have to cut that out. But anyway. Robert. Robert Klein. Robert sorry. Klein. Thank you. Yes.